Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game and is so packed this week we don't even have time to mention that we've just passed over 2 million downloads. I'm Kevin Day and he's Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Such a shame, Kieran, that we don't have time to discuss those 2 million downloads or indeed producer guy's shifty response when we asked what that might mean financially. Uh, <laughs> yeah, by, the time you, by the time you filter out my Irish cousins and your Irish cousins, I'm not sure how many of the two million will be left, Kevin. Oh, that's a fair point. Yeah, you've taken the gloss off it a little bit there. It's amazing with all producer guys' money, you'd think he could afford a phone line that didn't keep cutting out when we mentioned wages. Um, later, we'll be having a brief chat with Rob Angus, who's from the Swindon Supporters Trust, about the saga unfolding down there. But it's questions day, Kieran. And boy, do we have questions. Plus a couple of essays and an autobiography. Um, <laughs> in which, in true ITV primetime Nicky Chapman style, we may have some long-lost relations for you to talk about. Um, our first question, though, Kieran, comes from Brian O'Connor. And Brian O'Connor asks, how many non-playing staff does the average Premier League team have? So let's say Brighton, Kieran, they're average. And (laughs) and what is the wage bill for non-playing staff? So from coaches, medical staff, marketing, media, etc., not forgetting the organic sourdough bakers at Brighton. (laughs) Very harsh, very harsh. It very much depends uh, on a club-by-club basis. If we take one of the G6 clubs, such as Manchester United, Manchester United in total employ nearly a 1,000 people. Until about three or four years ago, they were, in fact, the biggest private sector employer in Manchester. Um, Still can't pay their staff the the real living wage in Manchester, sadly. But uh, from from the Glazers, what do you expect? And Ed Woodward, their their focus is on the bottom line, as always. of those um, nearly 1,000 staff, 115 are players and 176 are down as coaching, coaches and technical. So that's going to be the medical staff and so on. Um, Manchester United's wage bill in, in a normal year will be in excess of £300 million, of which around about 80% you'd normally allocate to the players. But it does start to get a little bit mixed when you then try to compare directly to other clubs because... Manchester United, for example, have twenty million pounds a season down as match day costs. So, stewarding, security, catering—some of those activities are actually farmed out to other people. Whereas, if you take a look at West Ham, West Ham say that they've got two hundred and fifty part-time staff on match days who who are likely to be directly employed. So, comparing like to like is. Uh, it is challenging. It, it, you know, if, even if, when you drop down the divisions, if we take a club such as Tranmere, which does such a fantastic job for the local community uh, in the Wirral, they've got nearly 300 part-time staff who are sort of running projects as well as helping out on match days. Mm-hmm. But the, the general split, having and I've spoken to uh, people at one or two clubs, is that they say you know, broadly 80% is, is going on the playing side of activities. Hmm. Uh, Our next question comes from Simon, just Simon. Um, And Simon says, as football restarted, Premier League clubs replaced actual fans with pictures of fans and support type banners. Now clubs like Chelsea have big advertising banners as well, promoting three, Singer, Nike, etc. Any evidence that they're receiving bigger advertising income as a result? I don't think so. Um, What's likely to be the case is that the senior commercial partners of clubs will say we we signed up for football taking place in front of full stadiums and uh, we wanted our our products to be associated with uh, you know, with with the stadium and the atmosphere you know that that living breathing organism that uh, that uh, makes football so much different and and we're not really we're getting a bit of a raw deal um when it's just static adverts um, in in front of nothing. So can you give us something else for our money? And, and I strongly suspect that the additional big banners that we are seeing um, are, uh, yeah, are effectively a, a compensation by the uh, by the football clubs 
to some of their senior partners who say, well, you know, aren't we entitled to a bit of a refund? We're not really getting what we signed up for. Um, so uh, that that's, could be the case. I mean, some clubs might be getting a little bit extra, but I would be surprised. Uh, you know, Manchester United, for example, that they've actually put those big banners um, over the uh, over the seats because the manager complained that the uh, the, uh, the 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 players couldn't uh, see each other on the pitch because all they could see was a bunch of red plastic, which is uh, unusual for Old oh. Trafford, of course. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I I suspect Palace removed some of theirs because the silent fans looked a bit judgmental, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sitting through what they had to sit through. Now. Our, our next question, Kieran, this is the one where you might have to strap yourself in and follow a bit of a journey. It comes from Neil Penfold. Um, Penfold was actually on my short list of names when Ed was born, um, uh, as I was just a, because I was a Danger Mouse fan. I thought oh, Penfold yeah. a great um, character. I thought Penfold Day would be a great name. My first choice mm. was Zippity Doodah because I thought, <laughs> I thought Zippity, what a brilliant name Zippity Doodah Day would have been. But uh, as I say, that was my list, not the official list, <laughs> which is why he's called Ed. Um, now Neil's question: This is where you need to pay attention. Neil's question is related to Malaga, who are now mid-table in the second tier. Says Neil. Neil says, I follow Malaga after my Uncle Terry, mm-hmm. yeah, then living nearby on the Costa del Sol, oh, took, me, took me to a home game 12 years ago. If that's true, then this pod has taken an intriguing turn. <laughs> uh, it really has. Um, Neil says, Malaga have had huge financial problems after being in the Champions League, and their Qatari owner, Sheikh Abdullah Altani, a prime candidate for Rongan, he says, and his sons were removed by a Spanish court and replaced by a judicial administrator. Altani was accused of taking £8.5 million out of the club. So uh, Neil asked, quite logically, when is it illegal for owners to withdraw money from their own club? And Altani claims to still own the club and wants £80 million for it, £80 million Euros for it. So why can't the administrator just sell the club to a new owner? Well, this is part, actually, of an ongoing investigation into... And let me give his full name, Abdullah bin Nasser bin Abdullah Al Ahmed Al Tani, uh, or Dave to his mates, um, <laughs> and and he's 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 still active on Twitter. I did did check his account this morning. He bought Malaga in 2010, and apparently at the same time um, he was being linked with buying um, Liverpool. Uh, and and as much as I loathe. FSG and their greed is good mentality. I wouldn't wish Althani on, on anybody. Mm. Um, and um, he, he did sort of back the manager uh, for, for the initial years. And under Manuel Pellegrini, they got as far as the Champions League quarterfinal in 2013. So you know, Malaga did appear to push on. And then uh, things all went wrong in injury time in the quarterfinal against Dortmund when Dortmund scored two controversial goals and since then, uh, the squad's been sold. It's been broken up. They've got the the second highest net income from player sales in La Liga, I think, since that date. Um, and and the finances have deteriorated. Now, in terms of this, uh, I think it's $10 million that uh, Althani is uh, supposed to have removed from the club. Um, there is a court investigation there is a municipal administrator now effectively running the, the affairs of the club. But until the court case is finished, the administrator, is my understanding, would not be in a position to relinquish Althani from his, uh, his, his role at the club and force through a sale to another person. So it's a case of, of wait and see. But uh, as uh, as Romans go, well, you know, anybody that's got an Uncle Terry living in the Costa um, will uh, will know that you know, there's there's more to this than meets the eye. And uh, as long as nobody from the old bills coming across to Spain, um, that's that's the way that everybody's uh, happier they are. Yeah, this this is definitely not one of Uncle Terry's aliases, is it, Althan? Are you sure? <laughs> no, I don't think so. But, no. I, it's 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 a valid question. I mean, if he's ostensibly taking his own money out of the club. Why, why does that become a, a matter for investigation? You've got to look at the the reason. Um, if it was an initial loan to the club, which has been repaid, then there's absolutely nothing wrong with that whatsoever. 
Right. If it was shares, you cannot get your money back from shares from the club itself. So you'd have to sell the shares to somebody else. We then go into the realms of, well, what else could he use as a vehicle to withdraw money from the club? He could pay himself a salary, um, but there appears to be no evidence of that. Or he could take the route that was taken down by a cuddly Ken Anderson. At, uh, at Bolton Wanderers. Ken Anderson said, I never took a penny in wages yeah. um, when when he almost took that club to its knees. Well, it did take that club to its knees, nearly destroyed it. But upon further investigation, he took out um, £625,000 um, as a consultancy fee. So yeah, there's lots of vehicles through which you, you can extract money from clubs. If that is to the detriment of the club's creditors, then potentially that could be a breach of company law. And therefore, that, that might explain why the Spanish legal authorities have decided to investigate further. Okay. Uh, Sebastian R. Fat is a friend of the show and a special friend of Kieran's after sending in this accounting question. <laughs> uh, uh, Sebastian says that several sports-related special purpose acquisition companies, SPACs, have emerged in the USA recently with several looking at professional football clubs as targets. So, for example, Red Bull Acquisition Corps, which has raised $575 million, down to Bullhorn Holdings with $75 million. Do you think smaller SPACs could spill into the lower English leagues and could it work for them and the football clubs they acquire? Right. Um, for people not familiar with SPACs, these Me. are known as Me. blank check companies or blank check investment vehicles. And what they do is that they they go onto a stock exchange and they say to people, give us some money. They say to investors, give, give, give us some money, um, but we're not going to tell you what you're, what we're going to do with that money. Oh. Um, but what, what they aim to do is to get somebody who is perhaps connected with a particular industry. So that could be tech, it could be entertainment, it could be sport – as a sort of one of the the lead people at the spec, and then what they have to do is normally within sort of eighteen to twenty four months, they need to identify an organisation into which they can invest, and then they buy that company. That company, therefore, that that football club potentially is listed on the stock exchange through this spec, and. Um, then, then the shares can be sold, and, and if and if it's been a good investment, then people can make a profit. Um, they are very popular in the US, though it does appear to be a bit of a fad, which is starting to fizzle out. But the reason why there's so much money in the states is that with interest rates so low, what do people do with their spare cash? They they start to speculate with it. That's why we're seeing, um, you know, the huge spikes in prices of Bitcoin and other relatively speculative assets. Um, so it, it's intriguing. Could could they therefore go and take a punt on a club in the championship or even a, a, with that, with these figures, a, a, a non-big six club in the, in the Premier League? Certainly, one of these was at one stage being linked with, uh, with Liverpool. So, so it, you know, there's certainly the opportunity for this to happen. Um, it's just that the, these uh, these particular latest acronyms um, do appear to have lost their luster um, over the course of the last six months because there's so much, so many of them around. People are saying, "Well, you've got 200 companies effectively saying we're going to invest in something, but we've not got a clue what we're going to invest in just yet." Um, and therefore, are they actually ever going to make proper profits? So how does this work then in, in practice, Kieran? So Red Bull Acquisition Corps, and Sebastian, I have to say, gave us lots of examples, but just for time, I cut it down to two. So Red Bull Acquisition Corps approached me and say, uh, if you give us a million dollars, we guarantee you a return. And I say, you've come to the wrong person. Try, <laughs> try <laughs> producer guy. <laughs> And they go to producer guy and say, you give us 10 minutes. And what do they do? Do they say, look, once we've reached a threshold of $500 million, we then invest? Or do they just have a time period and then invest all the money that they they have raised? And, and if they don't invest in it, are they then arrested for scamming you? 
Right. The, the way that it works is that they will normally sell shares in the SPAC for $10. That's sort of the day. So it's, oh, they're trying to attract lots of small investors who want to make a bit of money. After they've got, say, 100 or 200 million bucks from them, they then say, right, thanks very much for the money. We are now going to take your money and we're going to stick, we're going to stick it into a secure account. So they can't run off with the money. There, there are checks and balances on that. And they've then got, in general, 18 to 24 months to identify a target. So after, after getting the money, they then say, right, OK, we'll, we're now trying to do something with your money. The, the people in charge normally charge a 2% commission on this and they identify the target and they go back to the shareholders and say, right, we want to buy you know, Liverpool or Palace or Brighton or Leeds or West Brom or whatever it's going to be. We've, we've, uh, we've got enough money to do it. It's your, it's your opportunity now to say yes or no. And if the shareholders all turn around and say, oh, actually, I think that's a bit of a bobbins investment – then effectively the SPAC will delist and they'll get the majority of their money back. Okay. And in the meantime, all that money is making lots of lovely interest for somebody, is it? Well, the, the trouble is, that, Kevin, there is no interest at present, is there? You know, the, the in, interest rates globally are very, very low. Oh, so okay. there, there's not – and the reason why these vehicles are popular is because – if you think about it, as an investor, you've got two choices. You can put your money in shares – or you can put your money into a savings account. If you stick your money into a savings account, the interest rates are are so low that there's there's no incentive to do that. So that's why they're starting to go into slightly more risky um, equity opportunities. Uh, okay, I got you. Dave Moore is a Sunderland fan. Uh, and Dave Moore says, following the takeover of Sunderland by Kirill Louis-Dreyfus, can you help me understand what Stuart Donald and his Madrox friends did with our club, from the £9 million loan secured against the club to the £20.5 million debt from Madrox being written off as an exceptional operating expense, plus other things. Should Donald be on the good step or the naughty step after all this? Um, right. Uh, Sunderland, effectively a, you know, a good 10 years in the, in the Premier League between 2008 and 17, mm. in terms of being a club there. Um, however... If you delve into their finances, although that they were in the Premier League, they were losing, on average, £450,000 a week. A week? A week, yeah. Um, So the owner, Ellis Short, um, I I hate to say this, he appeared to be a rather naive billionaire. (laughs) <laughs> and he, which which is oh, a bit the of a paradox, worst. isn't it? They're, they're the worst sort, aren't they? Those naive billionaires. <laughs> yeah, um, and and he put his faith in terms of the day to day running of the club in the hands of um, a series of chief executives, all of whom did extremely well out of uh, Sunderland. If, if you take a look at uh, Sunderland's highest paid director uh, during that period, uh, which peaked at two point four million pounds. Uh, for a single season, and um, there were a lot of people that uh, that did pretty well. Um, they got through a series of managers. Clearly, there was the Adam Johnson issue. You know, yeah, the, the yeah, club yeah. went from one public relations uh, crisis to another, and eventually, Ellis Short reached the stage whereby he says, "I'm a naive billionaire. I'm getting out." <laughs> Is there some kind of uh, naive billionaires anonymous that he turns up and says? Well, I, 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 think, I don't think I don't think there'd be many people there. To be fair, but <laughs> just him and um, Guy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so when he uh, when he left uh, Sunderland, he was owed around about one hundred and fifty million pounds. A lot of that money he wrote off. He sold the club to Stuart Donald and. Um, for those not familiar with Stuart Donald, Stuart Donald used to own uh, Eastleigh uh, Football Club. He, I think he then owned 10% of, um, uh, of Oxford United. But in order to buy into Sunderland, he sold those interests. Um, 
he had a wife and four children and then he met a lap dancer in a strip club and he didn't have a wife and four children anymore as such but that's that's another story um and uh he he acquired Sunderland and yeah initially it looked like he certainly said all the right things uh, and a bit like Mike Ashley another person associated with the club in the northeast he was seen uh, you know, he was engaging with fans. He was appearing on podcasts. He was doing, uh, from a public relations perspective, uh, it looked quite good. But you know, Sunderland then dropped from the championship into League One. There was the Sunderland Till I Die documentary where he, he didn't come out of it too well. Um, and and the, the relationship turned toxic. Now, his company, which he owned with uh, Charlie Methven, and some unusual uh, Uruguayan politician, Madrox, that uh, that was that was being used to effectively acquire the club from uh, from Ellis Short, um, and it and it appeared to be sort of using the parachute payments as a means of of paying off Ellis Short. Now, yeah, the the, the ethics and the morality of that is, is you need to park elsewhere, um, but it, it's certainly legal. Um, and then in the the 2019 accounts, there was a strange, uh, strange bit of disclosure um, where it appeared as if they uh, this club, this company, Madrox, owed Sunderland twenty million pounds, and Sunderland said, oh, "Don't worry about that, lads. We'll write it off." Right. So, so that's uh, what I think piqued the ire of many Sunderland fans, along with the fact that Stuart Donald. He became a bit of a laughing stock, and, and therefore you felt by association as a Sunderland fan, this this wasn't reflecting well on the club. You know, Sunderland fans, you, know, we, we, you and I have both been there, both been to Roker Park and the Stadium of Light, and it's it's a great it's a great place to visit as an away fan. Passionate fans, they don't like to be made to look foolish, and I think that Stuart Donald has made them look foolish. So, on which step is he on? Um, I think when he bought the club. His intentions were probably good, although I suspect his intentions were to try to make some money out of the club from you know, running it for a couple of years and selling it on the profit. Um, he sold it to, to Louis Dreyfus, um, where it looks as if they've now got a bit more stability. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's a bit like uh, it, it's a bit like a dodgy one night stand. Uh, you're just trying to wipe it off the memory banks. And, and I think that's how. Uh, uh, Sunderland fans would like to go forward in terms of their relationship with Stuart Donald. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by Manscaped, the global leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels and is now available in the USA, Canada, the UK, Australia, New Zealand and the EU, so we can all be tidy together, Kieran. Yes. And and did you know that every hour somebody's diagnosed with testicular cancer? So this is a reminder to, to all of the men listening to check yourself before you wreck yourself. To help reduce that figure, Manscaped has partnered with the Testicular Cancer Society to spread awareness for men's health and early cancer detection as part of their We Save Balls initiative. So whilst you're down there cleaning up your sack, why not go down and give them a little investigation for lumps changes in size or any pain and if you feel out of the ordinary give your doctor a call you can get 20 percent off and free shipping with code price of football at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off and free shipping with code price of football all in capitals at manscaped.com your balls will thank you Is there a subject that you can't analyse to a, a dodgy one-night stand, Kieran? Because it, it seems to be your go-to analogy at the moment. <laughs> it really worries me. Um, do you know what, what occurs to me about that story, apart from the relief that the lap dancer is in somebody else's bit of it, is that this, until I started doing this pod, this illustrates exactly the disassociation between football fans and football finance. Because when I was doing Match of the Day 2, I probably did Sunderland as much as any other club and I used to really look forward to going up to the stadium and like to film up there. It was always a brilliant place to go, always a really, really welcoming, friendly place to go. 
And yet all this stuff at a higher level was going on that I didn't know about and fans didn't know about. And it's, I sometimes wonder whether I wouldn't have been happier left in, in blissful ignorance, but it's, <clears throat> that really illustrates the, 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 the gap between the people working at the lower end of the club and the fans and the people at the other end. I mean, because like you, you touched on Charlie Methon. I mean, he basically sneered at the people of the North East for the whole time he was, he was there, didn't he? It's just, oh yeah. Uh, I mean, his, his comments that, uh, uh, people in the northeast they don't understand finance, well, so therefore yeah. they shouldn't bother themselves. It's this, it's this very disturbingly patronising yeah. public school mentality. Um, you know, just just because we're from a a different background, that's all it means. We're just from a different. It doesn't automatically make us stupid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, also they do understand finance. They understand trying to make fifty quid a week last to feed the family. A lot of them, mm. but um, Neil Kimpton. Now, this is an interesting one, Kieran. Neil Kimpton said, In December, despite the valiant efforts of volunteer fans, Harrogate Town's game against Carlisle was called off 10 minutes into the actual match. When this happens, do clubs have to just swallow the costs involved, floodlights, staff costs, travel, etc., or is there some kind of central fund? And do the teams have any influence on the decision, or is it solely the referees? Now, I can answer that bit, uh, the referees bit, because technically... Absolutely solely the referee's decision based mm-hmm. on the health, safety and welfare of the players. But I asked an actual referee and it all got a bit complicated in ways that I don't think we should go into on this show, Kieran, basically. Um, uh, so so let's, let's ignore that bit and say technically within the letter of the law, uh, they have no influence whatsoever on the decision. None whatsoever. None. Uh, and you can read between however many lines you want on that one. But in terms of the, you know, the cost of Harrogate Town, it... I mean, it's a fair question because this is—it's an act of God, isn't it? It's a snowstorm that's happening ten minutes into a game, and it's costing them a lot of money in an already cash-strapped season. It is, um, but ultimately, the home team is responsible for hosting the match. And if a game is uh, is postponed or abandoned, to make things worse, the the home team is responsible for the costs of the away team. Oh. So that can be train fares up to £100 per person or coach costs up to £2,400 for up to 24 employees. And if the club, if it's an early kickoff, if it's a, then potentially you might have to go and pay for the hotel accommodation for the previous night as well. So it, it, it can be a bit of double jeopardy. Um, but they won't get anything back in terms of the costs to the the home team. I mean, we're we're talking to um, Rob from from Swindon a bit later on, and, yeah. and I can remember, uh, I think it was about nineteen seventy seven, go, going to Swindon, and uh, that, they were four nil up after sixty four minutes, and the heavens opened, and the referee abandoned the game. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, they would have had yeah, it, as bad as it gets in them, and. And and I think in the in the replay game we we scabbed a one nil victory just to make things worse. Wow. So um, <clears throat> unfortunately, that the home team is the one that uh, has to suck up all those costs. I, I did not know that they had to suck up the away costs as well, which might be one of the reasons where referees are encouraged to call a game off as early as possible. Mm. Aren't they? Encouraged, mm. I say, because it's all down to the health and safety of the players, etc. But um, yes, uh, well, I suppose it makes sense if you're. If you're if you've got Carlisle coming down, you might as well tell them eight hours before they arrive that the game's likely to be off, as an hour before. But you know, referee's decision solely. Now Dennis <laughs> O'Connor, there's another another O'Connor, Dennis O'Connor. <laughs> I'm chuckling. D O'Connor, D O D O'Connor. Have I missed something there, Kieran? Is this something in line of duty that I don't? No, 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 no. No, I believe. I believe uh, there was somebody from Line of Duty on on the program to which you contribute. Uh, in, in, indeed, Adrian Dunbar. And have I got news for you? I, and thank God there was no audience. I, I've friends of mine, middle aged friends, normally placid, calm individuals, losing their shit when I told them Adrian Dunbar was hosting. Have I got news for you? I just, uh, really, right, rightly seen. so. The, the man is well, closest thing to God on the planet at present. Yeah, you, you know he's acting, Kieran, don't you? 
No, that's not no, a doc- no, that's you, know, that, that's you know, it's not a documentary. Um, <laughs> uh, Dennis, o- Dennis O'Connor says, uh, this made me chuckle the way Dennis put this. Uh, Dennis O'Connor says, I do enjoy listening to your podcast. Uh, it's almost like he's weighed up the options there and decided to plump for, yes, I do enjoy it. Uh, but hello, who's out who's at the door this time of the day? <laughs> it's, it's next door who have just returned from Turkey, and I think they're dropping Whoa. off some Turkish delight. Uh, uh, holy mother of God. It, <laughs> that, that, is, that is Ted Hastings, isn't it? Uh, well, just to go with the 70s doorbell, and it's, it's, it's the next-door neighbours have just popped back from Turkey with some Turkish delight. Have they, they? they can't come near us, of course, because they're self-isolating. Well, they're not that self-isolating. They just rang a doorbell. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Uh, anyway, Dennis says, I do enjoy listening to your podcast. And as a chartered accountant, I'm very familiar with your favourite accounting topics of amortisation and impairment. Impairment? Well, I, I know I go to a happy place sometimes, Kieran, when you're talking about things. Have we talked about impairment? Well, anyway. Impairment's when you sign somebody shite and you realise he's shite. Oh, impairment. Is that what it is? Yeah, that's, yeah, what, that's, that's what impairment is. Yeah. I, I shall tell my palace supporting mates that there's a name for it. Um, <laughs> uh, Dennis says, I have a question on how clubs account for image rights. Uh, simply put, uh, I'm going to be the judge of that, Dennis. Simply put, do they capitalise the value of the image rights for a player that they pay the player's promotional company or his previous club uh, and amortise the contract value over the length of the deal or there's an or, um, <laughs> do they do they expense the image rights payment to the player or his company through the profit and loss account when such payments are made? <laughs> right, I'll let you go make a cup of tea now, shall I, whilst I answer well, this? You, will probably, you, may, you may need to re-put the question because I'm not 100% certain I've even read it correctly, let alone understand the answer. Okay, um, when a player is signed by one club from another, you pay a compensation fee for his registration certificate. Now, we call that a transfer fee. Right. And that is amortised. When it then comes to negotiations with the player, let's say that uh, you're approached by another quiz show, Kevin, and they say, here it is, Kevin, we're going to pay you £10,000 an episode. And you'll say, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, You know, I end up paying a lot of tax on that. Can we work this out a different way? How about no, no? You... I would, I would just take the ten thousand quid, Kevin. <laughs> right, okay. There's no point continuing this negotiation. I'm, I'm ushering my agent out of the room, saying, "Did they gen- genuinely say ten thousand pounds? Sign it, sign it." That <laughs> um, they say, they say, "Well, hold on. What we'll do is that we will pay you eight thousand pounds an episode, and we will pay you in addition." £2,000 an episode for your image rights, you know, perhaps your signature on the, oh yeah, when, when the show, when, when the show's opening credits come up and things of that nature. Um, and that £2,000 a week doesn't go to you directly, but it goes to this company. And instead of you paying 45% tax on all 10000 you pay 45% tax on your earnings and your image rights company pays 19% tax on the money received by the image rights company. And then a few years later, let's say that that, uh, that TV show is no longer available, you then start to extract the money from the image rights company, but you pay that, you end up paying a lower rate of tax on that. So right. that's the way that it would operate. So, so it's, it's all to do with, with tax planning. Now, HMRC... Um, they normally say we won't allow people to have more than 20% of their pay in the form of image rights. And the reason why there are a number of, <coughs> excuse me, there's a number of outstanding investigations by HMRC is that historically some players and agents and clubs have taken the mickey a bit and have tried to say, well, you know, this, uh, this, this, you know, fullback that we've signed for Romania, um, he's taking 40% or 50% of his money through his image rights company. Um, and HMRC has said, that that's just a scam. So, so that's right. the way that it works. It would normally um, be, be treated as part of remuneration. It wouldn't be capitalised. The interesting thing from my point of view, and this is only because I'm a nerd, 
whether the image rights costs are actually included as part of wages or whether they are shown elsewhere as just sundry expenses. Because this could mean that if if a lot of money um, that is actually going to players is not being shown as wages, then the wages bills of Premier League football clubs could be significantly understating the true cost of employing those players because only the physical wages paid to them would, would be shown within that heading and the rest would just be subsumed elsewhere, which I appreciate has got no interest to anybody apart from me. No, it probably has. We've had two million downloads, Kieran. We wouldn't have kept all of those if they weren't interested <laughs> a little bit, I'm guessing. Um, that that 19% figure, Kieran, that just happens to be the the tax rate for image rights, does it? Because it is a no, huge... That, that's, the, that's the tax rate on companies. Oh, so what, right. what you would do, right. okay, you would you. set up Kevin Day Image Limited yeah, and Kevin Day Image Limited would invoice the football club each month <laughs> 20% of the overall package that your you or your agent had negotiated. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Hmm. That would have imagine the confusion for those American investors giving ten dollars to an SPAC when they get a letter saying we're thinking of putting five hundred million quid into Kevin Day Image Rights Limited, <laughs> and they say this this handwriting looks familiar. Um, two more questions before our interview, Sam Woodruff, uh, and this is this one of those questions I like because it seems simple, but I'm surprised no one's asked it before really. But Sam Woodruff said Arsenal approached Norwich to buy Emi Buendia in the January transfer window, and apparently Norwich asked for £40 million, but instead Arsenal offered money plus players. Which scenario would have been better for Norwich in regards to money made and FFP? Well, if you have player swaps, there is scope, and I'm not saying this would ever happen, to start manipulating the numbers. So... If, uh, if Norwich wanted to report a big profit on the sale of Buendia, and I think Arsenal were supposedly offering Will Willock or Reese Nelson or perhaps both of them, right. what they could have done, they could have said, well, we're actually going to value Buendia at £60 million, and Arsenal say, well, we will value Willock and Reese Nelson together at £60 million, and therefore, both clubs report a big profit on the deal in the year of sale. So that would certainly help both parties towards financial fair play. And if you look at some of the um, deals which perhaps have raised eyebrows in, in recent years, we've got the uh, Alexis Sanchez and Mkhitaryan swap between Manchester United and Arsenal. Um, both clubs uh, had players who for whatever reason, things weren't working out um, and they managed to show a profit there. If we go back to uh, Barcelona and Juventus, um, Barcelona had uh, a midfielder called Arthur, a Brazilian midfielder, you know, decent player, not outstanding. Uh, Juve had a 30-year-old, I think, he, I think he's Serbian, uh, midfield player called Pjanic. And, um, yeah, you know, they are, they're, they're decent players. And what surprised people was that uh, in the player swap, Arthur was valued at €80 million, Euro, and I think Pjanic was valued at sixty-five. Um, whereas, you know, most people would have said those numbers look quite high. So, of course, this allowed both clubs to report a significant profit, which meant that when they went to financial fair play, which is, of course, profit-based, both clubs in that particular year um, were... Um, le cl less close to the limit than perhaps they otherwise would have been had the players been sold independently um, at perhaps 
values, which the rest of the market thought was appropriate. Mm. One more question before our interview, and this is my favourite question, Kieran. You'll find out why in a moment. It comes from Harry Haskett, and Harry says, when does cup prize money get paid to clubs? Is it paid per round or as a lump sum at the end of the season? See, that's my favourite question, Kieran. It's two lines at most. I could have taken the second part out of that question, and it would have been one line. Seriously, I... I and my routine is I start the twelve thirty kickoff on a Saturday. I start writing my script out. I'm normally done by half time. I was I was into Newcastle was scoring the third goal as I finished yesterday. It's astonishing. Kid. I, I was a, swearing when they scored that I, third I, I, goal. I, as well. I, imagine, I imagine you were, and I imagine you were probably <laughs> cheering when your ex goalkeeper helped Arsenal equalise just a moment. Oh ago. yes, yes, good yes. old Matty. But this is a good question. So when does the cup prize money get paid to clubs? Right, I, I've I've taken a look at FA regulations, and doesn't it appear to be anything specific? But the logic would have to be that it would be paid at the end of the season. If we take a look at UEFA, what UEFA do is they work out um, pots of money, um, which is distributed to individual clubs. Now, if we take the Champions League, the way that it works is that you get 2.7 million euro for a win. 900,000 euro for a draw in the group stages, and then you get certain amounts per victory afterwards. But in addition to that, there are other pots, other pools of money, um, which are allocated to clubs on a percentage basis. Now, if we take last season, for example, the season was curtailed as a result of COVID. So therefore, UEFA don't actually know how much money they have to distribute to clubs until the season is over, because they might have to get rebates from, uh, might have to give rebates to individual broadcasters. It could be that there are certain uh, certain payments to UEFA from broadcasters which are linked to the number of viewers for matches. Um, and therefore, as there is not a fixed amount of money to distribute, you have to work out how much money did we bring in? And then you say, well, you know, 3% goes to this pot, 6% goes to this pot, and so on. When it comes to the FA and uh, its prize money, it could be that the money is paid out a wee bit earlier. But again, um, you know, from the FA's perspective, what would have happened last season if the government had said, there is going to be no restart. Football will not be allowed to continue. And effectively, the FA Cup is abandoned at the end of the fifth round because the broadcasters would turn around and say, we want a huge rebate. Yeah. And the FA would then say, well, you know, we've, we've already given the money out to the clubs. We can't afford to give, give you a rebate. So for that reason, I suspect there will be a delay to the end of the season so that everybody knows just how much money there is to allocate to individual clubs. Now, the FA Cup prize money, it is uh, it is fixed amounts. There are no variables. But what we've seen, of course, in 2021 is that the prize money has been halved compared to last year uh, on the back of COVID. Uh, I'm glad to hear you say it is a fixed amount because that was going to be my next question. That, you know, Because part of the narrative of the FA Cup certainly in the first, second and third round, is is how much money a club like Marine, for example, will get by battling their way through. And we know that it could save them for several seasons. So it'd be very annoying for a, a club at that level to suddenly feel... Sorry about that. <laughs> that's, that's, that's... What else did they bring back from Turkey? <laughs> a bit of killing joke, never harmed anybody. <laughs> Yeah, I, it, I can't carry on with this train of thought now, Kieran. But so Marine, a club like Marine can rest assured that they will be getting the money that they think they will be getting. Yes, yes. Great. Okay, that's uh, all yeah. I need to say. Right. Now, um, it, <laughs> this is all crashing around about our ears, Kieran, question-wise, what with the next-door neighbours and killing joke. Um, so luckily, it's, it's interview time. There's almost an element of sitcom about the goings-on at Swindon Town, except that no one is laughing. So mm. we thought that we would talk to Rob Angus of the Swindon Town Supporters Trust to see if we could make some sense of these shenanigans is the only word we can use. But because I suspect that Rob was going to be full of righteous anger, I thought it might help, Kieran, if you could give us the briefest, briefest of of upsums about the charges that the FA um, brought against Swindon Town this week. Okay, so to try to summarise it, um, Swindon Town has for many years been controlled by a guy called Lee Power, who has had 
historic relationships with the game. I think he was an agent at one point. Um, And then in 2013, he apparently had some form of meeting with uh, a guy called Michael Standing. Michael Standing is an intermediary, um, or what we more commonly known as an agent. He was uh, Gareth Barry's agent. And in fact, both Michael Standing and Gareth Barry uh, signed for Aston Villa from Brighton uh, in in the late 1990s. And that's how that's how they first had the relationship. Clearly, Gareth Barry went on to have a fairly stellar career and Michael Standing had a, a solid career uh, as a professional footballer. But then I think he, he retired earlier than Gareth and, and focused on his, his agents. Um, there was then... A, the result of this meeting, um, it it had to be done uh, with an oral contract. An oral contract is still uh, still upholdable in law because neither players nor agents can own more than ten percent of a club. And um, the the deal was apparently that for eight hundred thousand um, pounds, Lee Power would give half of the profits from the sale of Swindon Town to the person that gave him the £800,000. Michael Standing said in court a few years later, that money came from me. And Lee Power said, no, it didn't. It came from Gareth Barry. So there's a there's outstanding confusion in respect of that. Um, it, Lee Power has also been trying to sell the club more recently. And other people have come in and said, well, you can't do that because we own some of Swindon Town as well. And it's that's where it's got all messy. Um, and therefore, the FA have charged the football club, Lee Power, Gareth Barry, I think, I'm not certain, Michael Standing and um, First Touch Pro Management, which is Michael Standing's company, which he set up five or six years ago. But he mysteriously resigned as a director last Thursday. Um, with breaches of the rules in terms of uh, intermediaries and players owning shares of a company. So I tried to keep it as quickly as I could, but and, and that is quick compared yes, to the, the pages and pages I had to wade through. It is, yeah. I might ask Rob this because I've got a feeling that Gareth Barry himself hasn't been charged, and I suspect producer guy would ask would like me to say that. that. That is the context, and I can assure people listening to this that that is – in about as much of a nutshell as anybody else would get it. So that's the context to the interview we had with Rob Angus of the Swindon Town Supporters Club. Rob, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Kieran has just given us a brief description, as brief as possible, of what's happening uh, down there at Swindon. So before we start, I thought I just want to remind you, um, Rob, that the laws of libel and slander do count on podcasts all right we're, we're all in enough trouble as it is without getting into more trouble and that's in no way connected to the fact that the first question i'm going to ask you about is is about lee power um now it's it's quite clear rob that the the relationship between lee and, and the fat swindon fans is is now toxic um has, was it always the case it's not always been the case, uh, Kevin. Um, I think it started off um, off the bat of a legal battle between Jed McCrory and Lee Power, as yeah. to who owned the club, and Lee Power came through that. And I think people had an open mind. Uh, we then didn't have any transparency in the engagement we were looking to do. So we, we at the Supporters Trust were working out what to do. And we, we looked to try and buy the county ground, which mm. is our stadium, which is owned by the council. Um, as a positive move to sort of try and support the legacy of, of the football club uh, and so that the supporters had an asset that, that could help as and when, uh, as a Swindon Town fan, uh, ownership issues happen because they tend to happen in our history quite a bit. Um, and actually, when, when we put in an offer to, 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 to buy the county going to the council, Lee Power initially said he wasn't interested, but then he said he would like to buy it uh, as an alternative. Um, we got together with the council um, and the council said, look, we, we'd rather a 50-50 deal between yourself and the club. So there aren't any issues if you fall out and, he, and they don't pay the rent, etc. Um, so, so thanks to the input of a new shareholder who just come into the scene, Clem Morfuni, who's an Australian businessman who mm. bought 15%, 1-5% of the club. 
we engaged on going into a joint venture with the football club and with Lee Power to buy the county ground. And then through Clemuth Morfuna, we had much better engagement with Lee Power up until um, the court, when the court details of the court case between Michael Standing and Lee Power and the Gareth Barry shenanigans came out last May. And, and just before that, we were about to buy the county ground with the club 50-50, um, agnostic of ownership. So it was an agreement that was going to last for hundreds of years for the supporters and for the football club to own the county ground and make sure um, you know, that the, some of the, you know, the rent that would come to the supporters trust would get invested back in to improve the, the stadium and make enhancements for supporters and, and improve a stadium, which is quite dilapidated now. Um, but unfortunately, with the details of the court case and the questions over the ownership of the club that arose from that, um, we've gone back to, to square one, really. And with on the 5th of February, Lee Power came out and said, look, I really, you know, the club's on the brink. You know, I can't make uh, make it beyond the end of February. And we called quite clearly for say, look, this is a serious situation. Come out and show us you know, the financials, we can support, we could help, we want a plan and a vision for the club, um, tell us what the position is. Um, and Lee hasn't responded to to that open letter. We we did say that we want to hear from Michael Standing, we want to hear from Claymore Thune and anybody else who is supposed to be interested in um, taking on Swindon Town Football Club. And the only one to reply was Claymore Thune, who said, I'm interested in buying the club, I've put an offer into Lee Power and I will provide financial transparency openness, engage the community and bring supporters onto the board. So we thought, well, that's great. Um, um, and we, we continue to ask for others to come forward, but we haven't heard anything. Um, and then a, a couple of weeks ago, we were, we were made, made aware that Lee Power was looking to put Swinton Town into administration or sell it to uh, an American firm supposedly called Able, who we can't find anything about. And again, we, we've, we've requested that they come forward. Um, and, that, and that was to lift an injunction which was put on Lee Power from selling the club or put into administration until the court case hearing as to whether Michael Standing owns 50% of the club or whether Lee Power owes Gareth Barry that, that money. Um, so to support um, the, the, the plan to stop putting Lee Power being able to put the club into administration and encourage a sale to Clemore Fooney, who, who we've done good checks. He seems a good and solid businessman from Australia um, with a good vision for the club. We made a statement to say, look, this guy's come in. He, he's, he's, he's responded. He's got a plan. He seems willing to take the club on. He seems to have the financial back in. He's committing to financial transparency. We support that, that view. Uh, and after we made that statement into the hearing, a week or so ago, um, Lee Power and the current ownership of the club have, have, have excommunicated uh, the trust and said, we don't, you know, we're not going to speak to you anymore because you've supported the, the openness and transparency that, that Claire Morfuni is promising. You're, you're the sort of guest I like, Rob, because you've answered probably the next five questions I'd plan to ask you. <laughs> Sorry. Well, no, 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 that's absolutely fine because this is... As as non Swindon fans will understand, listening to this, it's it's quite a difficult subject to to grasp the details of, and you've done a brilliant job with that. You let me take you back to February when Lee Power announced the club was on the verge of bankruptcy. I I never trust a, a club owner who makes himself manager at, at any stage, so he's always been a slightly odd character to me. But it, he's played both good cop and and bad cop because it. Initially, he painted himself as the good guy, saying it was only his money that was keeping the club out of bankruptcy and administration. And then recently, he's used administration as a threat, hasn't he? So it's very difficult to kind of grasp whether or not he's acting in the best interests of the club or of himself. It is very difficult, Kevin, because even in February, he said, it's only, it's only, I've, only, I've been the one who's only ever funded the club. You know, it's my money. And yet you've got a court case where his defence is... I've borrowed four and a half million pounds from Gareth Barry for this club. And, I, you know, Michael Stanley doesn't own the equity. So he's saying something that's quite different to the court case. So it's very hard to believe, very hard to get true facts out. We haven't seen the accounts. Um, the accounts that, uh, that are out there are the abbreviated accounts, which, you, as you say on your show, really hard to sort of dig into. Uh, they were last, uh, they go up to sort of May 19. And um, I think the, the next accounts are due um, by the end of May this year, but that will be only up to May 20. That doesn't really tell you what the current position of the club is, if it is on the brink. 
And hence, we're saying we want proper full financial accounts. We'd like to see management accounts. As a trust, we are set up and we would be willing to crowdfund and support the club. But we want to know the position and that the money would actually go to support the ongoing nature of the club, not into the pockets of, uh, of an owner. I've, I've looked and I've looked and I can't find any comment from, from Gareth Berry. Has he said anything at all? Is he, is he keeping his head down? Is that for a reason? No, well, I mean, he hasn't said anything uh, at all. There's been no public statements that I've seen. I mean, we were quite uh, surprised when the case came out. We're reading it through and, you know, obviously Michael Standing's claiming he's got this verbal agreement with Lee Power and he owns half the club and Lee Power's disputing it. And then in Lee Power's defences, I don't, you know, you don't own half the club. I don't owe them any to you. It's a loan from Gareth Barry. And that was, wow, where did that come from? Um, it, It did sort of pick things together a bit because we did have his nephew play for us for a little while, Brad Barry. Um, you know, back in the sort of 2014, sort of 2015 sort of uh, time of things. Um, but but no, he's not made his own sort of statement. And obviously that leads to the FA charges that have come up because Michael Standing, if Michael Standing did fund the club, he wasn't able to because he was a football agent. Um, so the FA have levied some charges on the club and Michael Standing and Lee Power um, and um, I, I guess there's legal action to defend those charges. We've been calling to the FA to say, look, if you do levy charges and you do find anybody guilty, mm. punish the individuals, not the club. Because well, as Swindon fans in 1990, when we, um, we, we got to the, to the top division for the first time under Ozzy Ardilis, we were under charges for irregular payments to players and we got demoted down the division. And the only people that really hurt were the supporters and the local community. We want to avoid that from happening again. Well, I'll bring, I'll bring Kieran here because Kieran mentioned when we spoke about this last week, that, that 1990 season. And once again, Kieran, it beggars belief that we're still talking about the fans being punished for the misdemeanors of, of people who own the club. And, and, you know, <laughs> I don't want to say anything that's going to get the pod into trouble, but whatever the motives for the, the way these people have behaved, it should be them that are punished, not not the supporters of the club. And the, the club's in a bad enough situation off on the pitch as it is, without fans having to suffer from this as well. It, and and it, it kind of beggars belief that it's it's people like Robin and, his, and the, the other fans that are going to get the punishment. Yeah, I think it's the classic tin ear that we see from football authorities. They, they don't understand that the biggest stakeholders, the biggest investors in a football club are the fans because they're the people that start watching and falling in love with Swindon Town at the age of seven and carry that love through them with them to the day that they die. And to uh, have the club sanctioned uh, does indirectly import, impact upon the fans, but the authorities don't seem to to see that particular link. And it's, you know what, what I love about football, Rob, as well, is that there isn't a single football fan on your behalf who would think it right that you're punished. But also, I just love the fact this proves that every club has got links between us. Like, you're, you're looking now, because we're doing this on Zoom, which is a, covers a bit of a surprise. I would have put a comb through my hair. But you can see a, you can see a picture on my wall of, of Don Rogers, who was as big a hero for me as he was for... For, for Swindon so again it's one of those things that makes me think I can't this can't happen to Swindon because Don Rogers played for them it's like, but let, yeah. let's go back to the FA charges because I mean this has been dragging on for for some time when the FA and it's a very stark announcement it was very few words literally saying that Lee Power first touch pro management and Michael Standing have been charged in relation to breaches of FA regulations and working with intermediaries it's very stark there's no detail did the charge come as a surprise to you, even though this has been rumbling on for a while? I guess it didn't come as a surprise um, because the court case illustrated that there, there would be an issue here. The timing of it did because the court case came out last May and the charges have only ju- just arrived now. And the court case is not due for final hearing until uh, I think the earliest will be December of this year and it could run to next March. So the charges at some point we think were going to come. Um, but we thought it might depend on the outcome of that court case. The fact that it's sort of come, you know, before the court case has sort of settled uh, was a bit surprising. What what would be the ideal outcome for you from all this? Would it be Mr Power no longer being in charge of the club? Are you not worried that he stays as long as there's clarity about what's happening? I think now the 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 the, the outcome for us would be that, that Lee Power 
goes. Uh, we believe there's another hearing in the courts arguing about as to whether Lee Cow can put the club into administration or sell it for a pound to these American, uh, supposed American firm called Abel, or whether he's he's encouraged by the court to uh, to sell to uh, Clem Morfuni. Uh, look, given the vision of openness and transparency uh, and connecting with the com- community that Clem Morfuni has has set out, uh, and he's been involved with the club for about five years, he's been very uh, open and engaging with the supporters trust since about 2017 our best best plan would be that that Lee Power is encouraged by the court to sell to Clem Morfuni who takes the clubs forward on the open and transparent uh, agenda that he's promised publicly to the supporters and the people of uh, Swindon broader community uh, so that would be the ideal outcome I think I, I think it's very hard now to see how Lee Power could come back from this given the damage that the lack of transparency and engagement has done over the, the last six months or so with uh, with the supporters. Well, especially once he, as you say, it public, publicly excommunicates the Swindon Town Supporters Trust, it's going to be very, very difficult to get that communication back. And, and it, this chap called Clem Morfuni, in, in my rudimentary research, he's obviously much more engaged with the club than I thought he was, because both Kieran and I... Uh, thought he was just somebody who'd appeared recently and looked like a potential buyer but it's clear that he has roots within the club already yeah he, he came on the scenes i think five years ago as a sponsor initially uh, with his firm which is a construction firm called axis and then he became a shareholder um about you know a couple of years later and he, and he came to us to say look you know let's let let's buy the county ground 50 50 together i'll engage with the supporters i'll work it through um, and we have had really good engagement with him, but he started to fall out with Lee Power at the back end of 2019, I think, as we understand it, due to, and it, he was taking legal action separately last year over his shareholding, which he wasn't happy with the paperwork. He's, he sold that outside of court, but he is still estranged, shall we say, from Lee Power. Hence, um, he is supporting Michael Standing in the legal action to try and force Lee Power to, uh, to sell uh, to, to him. Um, but he's he's always engaged very openly with us. And as I say, the commitment to openness and transparency and the commitment to invest in the club, develop the stadium, um, has been the thing we've been really looking for. So again, you know, we are owner agnostic for the right owners who, who yeah. set out that vision, but the only one who seems to be willing to do that and talk publicly with us and set out a plan to take the club forward is Clem Fooney at this stage. Kieran, uh, I've asked Rob what, the ideal outcome would be. What's your instinct as to what the actual outcome will be on this? I think there will be pressure on Lee Power to sell. Um, whether he's being given, whether he will be given the option to determine the buyer is is up to the courts to decide in terms of the present ownership because we don't know who actually owns Swindon Down. So until that issue is settled, we can't move on to the next stage. It, Kieran, it... it... I've used this phrase already, I think, twice in this interview, but it, it beggars belief that in the year 2021, in the English Football League, we're talking to a fan who doesn't know who owns his football club. How is that, how is that situation been allowed to develop when this has been going on since 2013? Well, uh, I mean, the EFL does have an owners and directors test, and it's, it, it's as robust as it can be but it does appear that there's been attempts to to circumvent the rules because by all accounts the arrangement between Lee Power and AN Other was a verbal contract agreed separately and there are there's no documentation to prove one way or the other so I actually here do have sympathy with the EFL um, you've fallen into my trap there Kieran because I wanted it to be you that said there's an attempt to circumvent the rules here so I thought for once it'd be nice if you got into trouble or not, and not me and not Rob. But I, because that, essentially that's what I was asking you, whether this is a deliberate attempt to circumvent the rules. Rob, it's been brilliant to talk to you. One, one final question. It must be so frustrating for you that there are no fans allowed in grounds at the moment, because that's where you could make your true feelings known around this issue in the last few games. I mean, you probably would have sold out every home game, mainly with angry fans who wanted to make their voices known. There would have been all both Guy and I know as Brighton fans and Palace fans when the chips were down, fans from other clubs turned up at our games to show support and and you know offer money. So it must be very frustrating that you're having to campaign almost in a vacuum. 
That has been really frustrating, uh, Kevin. And, and I think it, you know, it probably has enabled Lee Power to, to carry on, you know, longer than he has able, been able to, um, because that pressure hasn't been there, that, that visible pressure. Um, we, we just need to now continue what we're doing, you know, via social media, via media like this. And it's great and really appreciate um, yourself and Kieran and Guy having, having me on here to, to, to make the, the case that this, this needs sorted out now and, and we get, you know, a sustainable future for, for Swindertown Football Club, which has been going since 1879. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a great old club with a great tradition, great stories about how it was founded. We wish you nothing but the best for the future. If there's anything else we can do for you, let us know. And of course, it's a case we'll keep following. I'm reluctant to say goodbye for two reasons. One, this is a really interesting interview. And two, I don't want to go back to watching the dullest FA Cup semi-final I've seen for a long time, basically. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it will be for real by the time I get back, but I doubt it. Rob, thank you so much for talking to us and, and good luck with everything and we hope it works out. Uh, it sounds like this the, the Clenmore Funi outcome is the best for Swindon Town, so fingers crossed that happens for you, mate. Thank you. I mean, Kieran, it's, it's, it's a mess, isn't it? But the one thing we all... We all agree on, surely, apart from maybe from Lee Power, is that how can it possibly be that it will be the fans that suffer if there is, you know, these you know charges are upheld, and it could lead to points deduction. The club's already going down by the look of it, and the, the fans are the ones that eventually suffer from, you know, the mismanagement of people at the, the upper levels of the club. But well, isn't isn't that a microcosm of society in general, yeah, where yes. the innocent pay for the crimes of the guilty? Uh, yes. Do you know, funny enough, your your friend Adrian Dunbar from Line of Duty said something similar on Have I Got News For You? You're not, not the same person, Kieran. I've never seen you uh, and Adrian only, Dunbar in the same room. Um, <laughs> thanks to, God, no. <laughs> um, thank you to everyone who's become a patron of our pods via our Patreon site recently, including Richard Slevin and Tranmere Cat. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution, go to patreon.com forward slash price of football uh, if you don't want to make a small contribution that's absolutely fine it will still be free to air and if you want to make a massive contribution feel free and if you have any questions for any aspect of football finance for kieran then it's questions at price as ever i will hand you over to kieran mcguire from line of duty to say goodbye uh, well, thanks again for the reviews, folks. I'll keep this very quickly because I've been trying to eat a Madagascan vanilla double scoop ice cream throughout recording of this show. So it has been a challenge. And now it's reached the stage where the ice cream <laughs> has melted and it's starting to drip out the bottom of the cone. Um, but if you give us a review, great. Make those five stars. It's great. So, uh, that helps produce a guy and the tables. Other than that, look after yourselves and big love and hugs to all. You, you just played into every cliche that we have of Brighton fans trying to, <laughs> trying to juggle a Madagascar, not just a vanilla ice cream, a Madagascan vanilla ice cream. Well, never mind. You've got Turkish delight to go to go with it. Basically, yum yum. <laughs> oh, that was a sinister sound. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. The price of football. Bye, son, for the